Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello and welcome to the Long Forum Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I am here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, Aaron. Hey, you guys. Aaron, who is on the uh, who's on the program? We've got a repeat guest. Last time I talked to him, I was uh, at his home outside of uh, San Francisco. This is pre-COVID. This time I was on the Riverside call. Uh, my guest is Kevin Kelly. He has a new book coming out called Excellent Advice for Living Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. Now, I addressed this in the interview. I believe that this is the first advice, borderline, like self-help, like uh, wisdom book that we've ever done on the show. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> Aaron, 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 Aaron. No? <laughs> it's just the first one that you've done. I'm constantly talking to people who have wisdom and self-help advice. Just like a book of this in this format. Anyway, I always think Kevin's perspectives on publishing are really interesting. He is uh, um, one of the founding editors of Wired. He was involved in the Whole Earth Catalog back in the day. He's seen a lot of the different ways that sort of semi-personal publishing has shifted over time. And I also know that he's like a person who has embraced kind of a semi post writing future and is very like into like YouTube videos and that kind of stuff. So I wanted to talk to him basically about why write a book and the role that writing books still has in his and in other writers lives. Were there any life lessons that stuck with you? You're going to have to listen to the episode, Max. <laughs> no, actually I talk about this in the show, but one of the things I think is interesting in the book is it has a lot of like sort of profound human wisdom and then like very practical, like sort of life hackery kind of stuff. And one of them was about not looking at your own face while you're doing Zoom calls, which is something I discovered in doing the show quite late. And I've really been enjoying doing interviews for the show now that I don't have to look at my own face. Hide self view was a life changing moment for me. But there's not hide self on Riverside, is there? Or am I missing this? No, I'm just thinking about Zoom. Okay. This is fascinating for the listeners at home. You'll get to hear <laughs> me discuss this again mid episode, and it's not brief. We are brought to you in partnership with Vox. Thanks, as always, to them. And now here's Aaron with Kevin Kelly. Welcome, Kevin Kelly. Hey, Aaron, it is such a delight to be back and always a delight to talk to you. I welcome any excuse to talk to you. And the book that you have coming out, which I'll just, I'll plug it at the very beginning so I don't forget later, Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. It is what it sounds like. It's a book of 
very short, bite-sized, nugget-sized advice. How many what were we? Four hundred plus pieces of yeah, it in here. Four hundred fifty little tiny encapsulations of wisdom that may take a whole book and kind of reduce it down to about the size of a tweet. The purpose of it was to help me remember them myself, and then I decided to pass them on to our kids. It's interesting because this is not like the kind of book I read for this show very often. I, I like I get like a steady diet of true crime, some sort of big picture science. And I it's very possible that we've done an advice book before we're over 500 episodes. But I don't personally recall ever having done an advice book. But I always enjoy talking to you about different kinds of publishing yeah. and the different kinds of things that people might want to put inside a book. So I thought a place to start would be if you could tell me a little bit about your own personal relationship to advice as a genre. Do you read this kind of stuff as well as produce it? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. There are in the world of advice, I guess, different varieties. And there is like advice columns, which have risen from the kind of low end and, you know, your kind of uh, weekly newspapers to, you know, the New York Times magazine has a section and stuff like that. So it's kind of high end. I don't find those very useful. They're actually, you know, very specific people have some problem. And then this person who doesn't know them is going to give them some very concrete advice. What I have liked is like proverbs like this idea of taking some complicated wisdom and distilling it into as few words as possible to have it in a kind of a way that's handy that has a handle on it that you can kind of carry it with you and repeat to yourself memorize maybe even and that is something i have collected and i also just like quotes in general and I did a book um, where I had hundreds of quotes that I collected and that they weren't really advice, but they were um, almost like the equivalent of a physical formula. I think of them as like a well-polished rock, like a rock that's had the glacier run over them for many centuries or something. Rock is too inert for me. They're more like seeds that can be unpacked and grown bigger. So they're kind of, I think of these like kind of as seeds of contemplation where you take one of these things and you kind of unpack it for yourself. I'm just like, <laughs> like I'm just looking at my list here. Here's, here's David Hockney. The cause of death is birth. All right. Um, where nothing is lost, little can be found. Um, a genius is the one most like himself. I think of two things when I think of this format and you. One is that I know that you've spent a lot of time in China and that proverbs are very important to Chinese culture. Right. And the other thing I think about is that these small attributed pieces of wisdom are a form of catnip to the internet and always have been. And their main quality is that they're extremely viral and often misattributed to the wrong person. And I don't know what that means about the world, but it seems like it's important to our understanding of these wisdom nuggets. Well, the easiest way to deal with the, the latter 
attribution is just to ignore it. So, <laughs> so as you notice, I wasn't even telling you beyond the first one who said it because it doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter if somebody famous said it or not. It just works. So I've always kind of, not always, but for a very long time, I've been collecting these by the hundreds, these these aphorisms, these maxims. And then I begin looking at them in terms of advice. And when I started to write advice for my children, I kind of went to that form as a way to do it rather than – I'm not a very good storyteller. There are people who are born storytellers, and they'll tell a story. And they would much rather tell a story about this, about something in their own life or whatever it is. And that's not how my mind works. My mind works like, can I make a tweet out of this? Can I make a one-sentence summation that has a little bit of a unexpected turn in it? That's, for me, what the writing was about, was trying to strip something very complicated and involved and see, could I make this into one sentence? And that was a pleasure. So the writing part of this was my attempt to reduce this into this little encapsulated gem, if I could. Can we talk about that, actually? Because I've talked to a lot of people on the show about editing. And generally, people on the show will gravitate to the most macro form of editing. Oh, I had to cut 300 pages from this book in order to get the publisher to take it. And this is a form of editing that does two things. One... It takes something that's already small and asks, can it fit in an even smaller container? Right. But most importantly, it'll asks you to take a bunch of things which are very, very similar to each other and pick ones that have some sense of umami, some sense right. of like, <laughs> yeah, that's the one, not that one, that one. In your work over time, how do you think about that, not that one, that one problem? That's a great question. And by the way, this process is very similar to what people who write poetry is about. Mm. It's closer to poetry really than like writing an essay where you are trying to do that same kind of thing where it's like this, this tension between some, saying something that people can understand immediately. They can immediately grok it, but at the same time, there's an edge to it or a little turn or something. It's like, hmm, that's interesting. That's not expected and not familiar. And so you're kind of trying to combine the two at once. The next word they hear is one that they expect, and suddenly it's not the word that they expected to hear. But it makes sense. It's almost like how a joke works, too, by the way. And so, and so doing that, that's what I'm looking for, is how improbable is this? You want something that is not likely to have been said by somebody else. And that's actually, for me, one of the, uh, the marks of great writing is that that sentence by sentence is like no human has ever said that in a string before. And yet it is perfectly makes sense. You have to have those two together. You can't just have nonsense. You have to have something that makes perfect sense. I, I don't know what this says about my brain that I have this experience, but the ones that make me feel the most, I experience this momentary rush of profundity where I'm like, ah, oh, like that is how the universe is. And then my brain goes, you should hold on to this. This is important. And then I go, I'm not going to hold on to it. I'm like the experience. Was it passing through my head? Not necessarily to be stored. And it's weird because there's also very practical ones where I'm like, 
I'll read one that I noted here because I'm doing it right now. We are unconsciously distracted by seeing our reflection. You can alleviate a lot of the fatigue of teleconferencing all day if you turn off the self view. So you're currently halfway on my monitor and I'm floating in the void of some other monitor. That single realization when I had it was like one of the most like profound health changes I've had in the last couple of years. Yet something about when I have that feeling of profoundness, I kind of like want to like let it go sometimes rather than there's something about the act of note taking and hoarding that feels slightly it's like against the spirit of the exercise well well interesting see i don't have that i have much more of like i like to to memorize this and commit it so like you know one of the pieces of advice is in the book is if you know you have something in your household but you can't find it and eventually you find it it's a little flashlight or some kind of a pliers or whatever it is when you go to return it don't return it to where you found it return it to where you first looked for it so i repeat that to myself go oh, i found my flashlight right here i'm going to wait, wait wait don't put it back where it was put it back where you first looked for it and that can change my behavior so having that in kind of a little form or another piece of very practical advice was um if you get invited to do something six months from now whether it's a talk or a meeting or coffee whatever it is Ask yourself, ask my, and, and I ask myself, would I do this if it was tomorrow morning? Mm. Because and if the answer is no, then I'm going to say no. And so I have these things that, that I repeat. They're mantras. They're you know they're they're, they're proverbs. There's things that are kind of practical because I can repeat them to myself and remind myself. I need to be reminding all the time. My memory is so bad. Well, I want to talk about that that idea of sort of reminding and like collecting versus experiencing because like I, um, the last time we talked, I was in your um, beautiful um, book filled office. And I thought about like how much information was like packed within like 20 foot radius (laughs) of me. And I also know that you are a collector of many things, um, many forms of information and experience. And I, after all of these years, as a person who does want to retain and take notes on and remind yourself of this stuff, like what is the status of your sort of personal archive and how does it come into play on new projects? Are you still using things that you took notes on in the nineties or is most of your existence like COVID on? No, I'm, um, I'm a late bloomer. I'm a long-termist. I just, published a book last year called Vanishing Asia that I worked on for 50 years. So I have this ability and maybe a propensity to to do long-term things and accumulate things over long-term and kind of work on them. And, and, you know, in some senses, this advice book is accumulation of, like, you know, things I've been kind of collecting over time. And so, um, so I don't have that many projects that actually – bring to completion i've lots of little tiny things but i'm talking about kind of significant stuff i do several books a year Uh, they're private books they're just little tiny things that i hand out as gifts or otherwise just because i can't help it um but for most things i'm kind of i i do take a kind of a longer range view of things and for me the minimum amount of years that any project really takes is like five years 
Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. One of the themes that comes up, like I, I looked for the themes where there's like a lot of pieces of advice clustered around one thing. Okay. So one of the themes is about prototyping and how an idea in your mind is not the same as like when you're forced to like cut out a piece of cardboard, et cetera. And there's a lot of, this comes out of, from a lot of different directions, right? This idea. And when you know that you're on this like five-year cycle if you actually engage with one of these ideas and choose to do it. What is your path of abandoning like? Like what are the projects that don't come out and that look really different once you prototype them? And how have you sort of developed that skill of not doing things over your career? Yeah, yeah. So there's lots of things in there. I would say one of the things is and this uh, general idea of prototyping your way through life is that it's something that I really do wish I'd known earlier. It just just took me a long time to kind of arrive there. And um, I prototype now most things in my life. And from the books that I do, I will make a whole series of different levels of prototyping, including printing out books and binding them. I took the Asia book to a book binder in Oakland and, you know, and making versions of the books that are bound just to see and feel what they look like to when we do remodels in our kitchen. I did a full-scale prototype in cardboard, you know, using refrigerator boxes, just the scale, because there's so much you learn by having things at the right scale to prototyping in the sense of, like, you could say uh, another way of doing a book or another project is, like, you do an article first and you see what your response to that is, and then you move up to something else. And so I will prototype ideas or trying something like if I was to try and do something as a business or whatever it is, you try it as an experiment. Like we'll do it for six months. We'll commit to six months and see what happens. You know, this is like kind of like experimenting your way. Trial with measurements. So now I would be reluctant to commit to something big without having tried prototypical versions of it along the way. You want to have the maximum ability to change and flexibility at the beginning when you can kind of try things. And so um, 
I think one of the reasons why Hamilton was such a fantastic musical was because it was workshopped for probably a decade where they prototyped it again and again and again. And that idea of kind of workshopping things is really, really powerful and, and completely, I think, underused as a method. And you could kind of say you can kind of workshop your life. I'm, one of the things I'm always completely amazed by are people that I've met who um, they go through school, they graduate, decide they want to be a lawyer, they're going to study law, they study the law for a couple of years, and then they they graduate and they get a job a lawyer and they realize that they hate it. If you're prototyping your life, what you do is you get an intern, you work as a paralegal, you, you try law for six months or something. So I think this idea of kind of prototyping, rehearsing, workshopping is maybe it wasn't available like 50 years ago, 100 years ago. You had to kind of commit to things. But in today's environment, I think it's essential as a, as a way of kind of growing and moving in your life. I was thinking about the Internet, like is the Internet sort of encouraging or discouraging prototyping and you can sort of almost look at it both ways that the web is a great place to prototype because you can keep updating web pages they're not printed on a page you can keep iteratively working on it but also the proximity to instant publishing and the incentives around extremely short-term attention cycles are somewhat deleterious of prototype type thinking in that people are sort of encouraged to make their work public immediately and to present it to an audience uh, in its earliest stages. Do you have sort of like different filters for yourself about how many people are going to see a prototype and how much you're going to sort of allow feedback in at different stages? Yeah, I, I think the kind of, you know, the TikTokization, I think, works in the same direction of prototyping. I think the last thing you said is very crucial, which is often the genesis, the creative genesis does require protection. And, and that's another piece of advice I have in the book about separating the um, the editor from the writer. When you're writing that first draft, you don't want to be editing it at all. You don't want judgment and you don't want other people editing it. And there are certain levels of creativity where you have to protect it from judgment just to get it to stand on its feet, to kind of see what it is. And so um, you can't be too premature, but I see no advantages to hiding something until it's done. It's very rare when, when that's a, a real benefit. You know, maybe Hollywood is, you know, where there's hundreds and hundreds of people and they're going to kind of, you know, have a big splash, but they're not hiding it. You know, they've had focus groups and there's hundreds of people who are watching various levels of it and giving input. So it doesn't really need any more than that. But for an individual creator or a small team, it's a benefit to as much as possible work with feedback along the way. That used to be hard to do. And I think the internet just makes it easier to do. So those TikTok things, I think they're part of this workshopping, prototyping thing. So I consider them kind of each one as a prototype. I have one person I know who's trying to make their living doing TikToks. And um, he'll spend months working on one of these and the content and everything. 
and even though they're very short in the end, they're they're incredibly engineered, and um, this idea of engineering virality, which is what Mr. Beast has sort of figured out how to do, there's a lot known about it. I mean, you can actually create things deliberately to be passed, and so they do a lot of testing. They do a lot of A/B testing, testing the thumbnails for this one, that one. That's prototyping. I had a conversation recently with a friend who's a film director, and we've been friends since we were in high school. So we were like into film kind of um, kind of right as the first consumer video cameras were coming out. And I remember we had conversations then. This is the late 90s. But, oh, you're going to you're going to go to film festivals and like and I'll just be like homemade movies that people like made at their house. It's like, well, that didn't happen. Like you see a few of those. But what really happened is like people are doing that. They're making these like TikTok videos. Like yeah. the format is going to be very, very, very different than what you're picturing when you imagine a bunch of people prototyping like uh, home forms of your idea of a professional product. Right. The one caveat I would add to that is that I think that's not going to be the way going forward in the sense that I think with AI, we have the prospect of individuals, solos, creating feature films, all right? So that prospect is just like unthinkable right now. You can't really do all the work. You know, a single person can sit down and write a novel that a lot millions of people will read, J.K. Rowling, but she couldn't by herself make a movie. However, I think the technologies of image-making generation in 3D and in 4D are going to eventually give anybody the capability of imagining and directing and composing you know an hour-long video from their imagination and so it'll be like writing a novel so you'll have the same kind of the barrier of writing a novel is pretty low the barrier of making a feature film will be pretty low which will mean that a lot of it will be crap most of them will still be not very good I'm not talking about the quality. I'm just talking about, you know, the capability. For me and my my experience, you need to be able to make tons and tons of garbage in order to get the greatness. This is why we're in a renaissance now with TV. It's because it's now so easy to make, unlike it was 50 years ago. You're already starting to see some parts of what you're describing in terms of documentaries or over hour long pieces of nonfiction on YouTube. And I remember when I first saw them, I, you know, you, it's, it's easy to sort of turn your nose up at the, like, you know, guy looking right into the camera and reading in a slightly stilted monologue. But, you know, some of the stuff that like I'm interested in like crypto hacking incidents, it's unlikely there's going to be like an HBO production about these. So if I want to watch someone who put together an hour long documentary about something, that's what I'm going to get. I'm going to get a very motivated individual. And it's what sort of struck me about them is that because so much of the material comes from the internet, like if this all happened in tweets and social media videos, a person who's creating nonfiction about it has most of the tools already there. All they really need is a lot of time and a mic to narrate into. And so you start to see like, you know, where only the top 0.1% of stories would have a documentary about them. There's a much lower bar for these documentaries and there's way more of them than ever exist. 
Right. You know, I'm deep, deep, deep into the YouTube verse and I subscribe to almost 400 channels. It's my major, you know, failing in life. That's my major, <laughs> it's my major uh, discretionary time sink. I watch it every night for hours. And one of the subcategories that, that look at is history, this is the history um, YouTubers. And right to your point, what they're doing is that there is so much video online from scientists, other programs, other YouTube videos, other YouTube videos that they can assemble a very respectable, you know, PBS show ish life thing on whatever it is that they're interested in. And the thing about it is, and this is the genius of it is they're often interested in kind of the things that PBS is not going to do. Yeah. And like one of the things that I've you know always wondered about was how did the ancient like Roman citizens prove that they were Roman citizens? What was the ID that they like, how how do you prove that? Oh, I'm a Roman citizen. How do they prove that? So there's a guy who does this kind of PBS show the video and the whole thing, and it's just wonderful. PBS was never going to do that. So they're kind of taking all these resources and and recombining them in a way because it's all there. And that's just the found stuff. And what I'm saying is that with the AI generative, you'll be able to generate the new stuff. Not now, not this year, and maybe not even five years, but in 10 years, yes. That's going to be a capability that you'll be able to say, here are all the elements I want. Generate this as if it was a nature film or you know an archaeological dig, whatever it is. And so that's the power that I think we're headed into that people kind of aren't really ready for in a sense of um, just thinking that it's all about still images. It's, it's about video and game worlds. You've written about technology for a fairly long time now. And you know, even in just the description you just gave about AI, you're sort of threading the needle between what exists now and what exists in the future, but not lapsing so distantly into the like, we have to have a debate about whether we're all going to die, you know, whether humanity yeah. is going to die off or not. Right. And I feel like it's difficult to find footing between those two poles. Right. Right. The near term and it's much harder to predict the near term. The thing I've realized over you know this little business of thinking about the future and doing corporate scale consulting with scenarios and futurists where you're actually trying to be useful to a company. So, so I mean, they're, they're hiring you because they have a problem. The problem is like, should they take some money to invest into making another factory or do they want to put it over here? I mean, they have to kind of figure out what the future is going to be in five years. It's billions of dollars. And so um, you're trying to help them. One of the things about it is is that traditionally, a lot of these companies always – it's much easier to see problems than opportunities. And that's because of entropy, it's easier to see how things break than to see that the few ways that they can get better because that's more improbable. The probability is that things will break. So it's much easier for us to imagine all the ways in which this AI stuff does not work. It's much harder to see how even in the short term, it could be beneficial to billions of people because it's more improbable that it would be. And so most of the ideas that we're going to have will be wrong. Most of the ideas that we'll have will be kind of like more probable. Getting to the improbable is 
hard and it's hard because it almost kind of resembles an impossibility the difference between improbable and impossible is very close but the problem is is that that success state is very close to being impossible and so what i'd like to say is i i have actually tried to become better at believing the impossible as a help into getting to the improbable. Your work has often been associated with the idea of uh, technological optimism. Yeah. The last period of writing has been uh, generally associated with a fair amount of pessimism on a variety of topics, uh, technology being one of them, the climate being another one. Has this axis between optimism and pessimism always existed or is like this issue of optimism versus pessimism, like a current topic. Like I, I don't have enough life experience to remember. Yeah. That's a really great question. Like if you went back like 200 years ago, would there be the same dichotomy between people who are optimistic or not? There's a great Twitter that I follow called the pessimist archive. What they resurrect is this, this ongoing pessimism about people being outraged about novels, romance novels, how they're going to corrupt the loof. They're just terrible. People up, young people up in their bedrooms reading by themselves. It's like the dangers like, of the typewriter, the dangers. Yeah, exactly. Bathing. You know, you wouldn't believe <laughs> what was considered, you know, the fall of civilization. So in that sense, I think there have always been those who have been very, very worried about the changes and, you know, genuinely concerned that we're headed in the wrong direction. And then there are others, I think, and they're usually fewer, who you know are preaching the benefits and why this is a good thing. I mean, your question is whether that has ever catalyzed or crystallized into kind of like a an affiliation where people were calling themselves optimistic or pessimistic. That feels more modern. I think you're right about that. The one thing I would say about optimism, though, is that my book of advice it's basically also very, very optimistic. And I define optimism in many different ways, but one of the ways is that you're trusting, it's a kind of trust. You're trusting the future. You're trusting future generations. Other people call it pronoia, the idea that you trust that the universe and everybody else is basically good and going to try and help you, and you can trust them. And if every once in a while somebody cheats you, I treat that as a tax that you're willing to pay for the huge benefits you get of treating people well, and they're going to give you their best. And that sense of trust permeates the book. It sounds a lot like sort of faith, but faith without a concept of God, right? Believing similar things that people believe who would say God has a plan for all of this, but without the God part. Right, exactly. Faith is, that's an interesting term. So if the optimists have faith, then what is it the pessimists have? Is that <laughs> is that a kind of atheism or is that a faith in the worst? Well, it's true that, I mean, you could basically also find the pessimist case within the history of religious faith, which is, you know, that there's like uh, sin in all of us. Most of the world's going to hell. Like, yeah, um, the basic default of human is, is sinned, the sinned, flawed human. That's the default. That's the start. I put my faith in the grace of humans rather than their flaws. 
So you're you're like dabbling in the like YouTuber universe, like watching guys like do Japanese joinery with tools that existed in the 1700s. Yeah. And whenever I get exposed to that stuff, I go, oh, God, this would be so fun. I should I should do one of these. I should film myself doing something. <laughs> and then I, I don't uh, do it. And I know that, you know, despite the fact that you're dabbling in the worlds of AI and uh, YouTube culture, you know, this is still like a traditional little like book that you can put in your pocket could have existed 100 years ago. What keeps you in that format? And as you see all these new formats, how do you think about formatting your own work? Yeah, no, it's, that's a great, great question. Because I keep telling people that I'm not going to write any more books. I'm not going to do any books on paper first. And yet here I am. I did another one. I've done two of them since I said that. <laughs> the, the short answer is that it's easy for me. I am, you know, I, I live my life surrounded by magazines. My dad worked at Time Life, brought home magazines. I grew up devouring magazines and my first job was working at the library i just i am you know i'm a person of the book that is my native place and i just i've done it for so long it's very easy for me to do i completely understand how to do it i can do it without thinking so i gravitate to that because it's easy so so i have been filming myself making things i have about 50 videos that i have filmed but I am not at ease with editing. Video editing is, it just frustrates me all the time. And even though I made a movie very early on, I just never, I never acquired that, that um, ease. And so despite the fact that I'm stuck there, I believe that's the future, 100%. This cultural gravitational center has moved to moving images. The short form, the TikTok, the long form, and whatever comes with the games and the whole immersive world, that is where the center of the culture is going to be. And it's not going to be reading books. So I'm very aware of that shift. And I'm trying to move myself into it. So the next project I'm working on about the, I'm doing a project about 100-year desirable future, making a description of a future that I want to live in in a hundred years is full of high tech and how we, the 10 year intervals that we get there. I'm saying that's not going to be a book. It wants to be something else. I don't know what it is, but not a book first. So I, and I have to do that kind of very deliberately choosing that because otherwise I would just say, Oh, I'll make a book. I know how to do a book. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I'm starting to feel some of these things about like podcast and audio where I felt like, um, <laughs> not like ahead of the curve, but I felt like, hey, I, got, I got like a pretty good handle on it. And then I watched like a lot of videos and I can't understand. I'm like, okay, did they film themselves? Like, like both sides of the sketch. Like I like, <laughs> yeah. like it's almost magic to me just cause I, I can't quite conceive of how they put it together. We have this like grounding for like a Hollywood movie. There's a script, you shoot the scenes and it's cut together. But like, the more casual stuff, I just, it's exceeded my understanding of the ingredients inside it. Yeah, yeah. That's become what's a reflex. The reflex, which is to film yourself or to film it doing it, I don't have yet, which is kind of what you need. And then to imagine, again, 
one of the things about Wired, doing Wired and doing books is that I could work back. I kind of imagine, I'm imagining and visualizing what it looks like on the page. When you're taking your camera and you're filming, you have to kind of have some idea in your head how that's going to look like in the final thing. You're kind of pre-visualizing. That was the Ansel Adams term. You pre-visualize as you're capturing things. You're kind of imagining how you're going to use it. And that I don't really have as a second nature, as a skill, but it's also a, a sensibility. And and that's where I think we're moving to is, it's not a world of just TikTok. That's a short form, but it's just moving images of all sorts, including the documentaries we were just talking about, including feature films, including a hundred hour TV series like Lost or you know, whatever, just a narrative that, that lasts that long. That's, that is where the, so it's not, you know, that's a long attention span. That's just not a, it's not about short attention spans. I think that's a distraction for people. We're making things that are more complicated than anybody 50 years ago would have conceived that there would have been a market for a hundred hour story. They would say nobody would watch that. Well, lots of people want to watch that. I mean, look, this pod, not to like, um, not that I uh, wish upon anyone listening to the whole thing, but like if you put all the interviews end on end, this is like five, 600 hours of interviews, you know, <laughs> some people have sat through this all. Yeah. It is funny how we talk about this as a short attention span era while people are reeling off three and a half hour pieces of media that are just people talking to each other. I listened to Lex Friedman interview John Carmack for five hours. Of course I was at two X but nonetheless, it was a five-hour interview. All right. My final question dovetails nicely with that. I think that the spur for this book was one of your birthdays. I don't remember which yeah. one. 68? 68th. 68th birthday. When I think about my life right now, it's like a weird mix of like, you know, I want to do things I want to do, but I need to earn a living and I need to like take care of my child and send her to college. It's like 17 different objectives <laughs> sort of each eating away. Right, right where you are now in life, how do you decide like what to spend your time on? And has that changed how you relate to these projects knowing that, you know, there's a finite number of them ahead of you? Yeah. So I guess I've had several different answers to them because not uh, the reason for doing things is a little, can be a little different and I allow myself that difference. So in some cases, you know, I haven't retired, so I'm still working to earn money. And um, so sometimes that's a factor, and other times it's not. And so uh, what I will say that has changed over time is I, I can reduce this a little bit to, to one of the pieces of advice in this book, and that's don't aim to be the best. Aim to be the only. And that came from my time at Wired where – I was trying to give away ideas of mine to authors to write. This is how we commissioned stories. We'd have an idea at the editors, and we'd try to hire our writers to write them. And they would um, – oftentimes, some my favorite ideas would never – nobody else liked them. And I would try to kill them off. But sometimes some of the ideas would come back later on next year or something. I thought, that's a really good idea. We really should try and do that. And, eh, nobody likes that. Okay. But then it would come back again. And 
over it took me some time to realize that oh, oh this is a great idea i think it's a great idea but i'm the only one who thinks it's a great idea maybe i'm the only one who can do it so i will do this one reluctantly myself and that, that often were my best ideas and so what i've changed is that you know the normal advice or the normal sweet spot for most people including myself was to aim towards something where you would do something you just love doing and you were good at it. And then if you could have this third thing of getting paid for it, other people found it valuable. That was the holy trinity, right? Stuff that you love doing, stuff that you're really good at, stuff that people value, they're going to pay you for, then that little sweet spot is where you wanted to be. And that's, I thought, was the ultimate. But there was a fourth level. And that fourth level was, can anybody else do this? Because if someone else could do it, then with time being short, I only wanted to do the things that only I could do. First of all, they were easier to do at that point. You're not looking over your shoulder. I've just spent five years trying to give away the idea. No one's going to do it now. (laughs) Right? And so you're doing what you're here to do because no one else is going to do it unless you do it. And one of the ways that I ask this is by talking about what it is I want to do, hoping that someone else will steal the idea. And I've surrendered a number of different things because someone else is doing it, even though I thought it was a really great idea. I could do it. I'd really be good at it. It's like, well, no, they're doing it. Okay, that means I don't have to do that. So in addition to the kind of like, would I really enjoy doing it? Is this something I would be good at? is this other level of, is anybody else doing it? You know, like my Asia book, that's a book that simply is like, unlike anything else in the world. I have all the Asia books. I have all the photo books, travel photo books in the world. I have 15 feet of them. I know that there's just nothing else like it. There was no one else remotely trying to do what I was doing. So that felt good. And there was really no economic, like, immediate economic model for it. I did a really successful Kickstarter, which got was at the time the second highest nonfiction book ever. So there was enough money to do it and interest. But the main thing was was that it was like no one else doing this. And that idea of not being the best but being the only is something that I have came to late to understand and is something that colors me when I decide what it is I want to do. And I do that by talking about it forever, telling people everything what I'm doing in the hope that someone else is already doing it or that someone else will take the idea and run. Kevin, thank you so much for this interview. It was a pleasure. I really, really enjoyed it. I hope others enjoyed my little bits of advice, opening up the book at random. Here's a piece of advice for a 20-year-old. If at all possible... Try and work on things where nobody has a name for what it is that you're doing. And I believe you just committed on the show to not writing any more books, but I have a feeling that you will write another book and we will talk about it. Uh, So please come back when you do. And that was the long form podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff every single week. Our editor on this episode was Susan Peterson. Megan Valley handled the show notes. Thanks to everyone over at Vox Media. 
We'll be back next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.